Before we start this episode, I would like to mention the Masters of Motion Jobs Network. If you're looking for a new job or trying to hire a new recruit, I highly recommend checking out our Jobs Network. With over 30 jobs a month from some of Australia's and New Zealand's best studios. Find out more at mastersofmotion.com.au I'd also like to thank MSI Computers for supporting Masters of Motion and helping make this episode possible. My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be chatting with John Gorman, who works as the creative director at Buck New York. John started his career working in Melbourne, Australia as a freelancer before moving to the US in 2008 to work at Buck. Since then, he's worked in different roles such as storyboard artist, concept artist, look development, design, compositing and animation before moving into art direction and developing his skills as a leader before becoming a creative director. He's worked on high-end projects for well-known brands such as IBM, Apple, Google, Facebook, Nike, and MailChimp. John is both an accomplished designer and an outstanding creative leader. I'm excited about this one. Let's get into it. Thanks very much, John, for coming in and taking the time to share your knowledge with us. Yeah, thank you, Matt. I'm, I'm looking forward to our chat. What advice would you give to motion designers who want to work on high-end work? I would say work on low-end work first, because that's kind of where you learn that grit and like the processes that you can actually apply to the, the high-end brand work. Do you do many personal projects or do you recommend that personal projects? I definitely recommend people doing personal projects. Um, I don't do that many of them myself anymore. Yep. A lot of us kind of get stuck in in the loop of like trying to find all of your fulfillment through professional work. The personal stuff is where you get to experiment and like try out the things that you're specifically interested in. What are the key attributes or personality traits that's made you successful throughout your career? I have some obsessive compulsions which has probably contributed a lot to that but really i just i don't like figuring stuff out knowing the why of stuff and then um then expressing that what, what would you call that obsessive curiosity is what i would say what are the skills you need to develop to become an art director being able to communicate is, is really important being able to communicate the intent and like um, the context of what you're doing is is super important. Yep. It's not only being able to like communicate with, you know, your director or, or in sometimes clients and the rest of the team, um, but really being able to communicate the direction you're trying to 
give, but also clearly what the intent behind that is. No one, I think, as a designer or animator wants to hear, we're going to do X and we need it done by Friday. Yep. Like context is really key there. Any other tips? Also a perspective, like having a perspective on the direction, like how you design and what, what you're trying to accomplish to kind of give weight to that feedback. Okay, so it's understanding what you're actually planning to do. Is that right? Yeah, like the, the thinking behind what, what the action is. And how does that help the artist? No one ever does a better job with less information. So it's like the more you can make clear what the immediate task is, but also put that task in place within the bigger project, yep. the better people are going to do. Okay. If someone was thinking about becoming an art director or a creative director, what advice would you have for them? Putting your team ahead of yourself. Yep. I've come to the realization of just over the last few years, even though I've been working in those roles for a while, um, like I think a lot of us as designers or animators, like it is very specific to what I'm doing, like what I'm designing, what I'm animating. And as you move more into those directorial roles, you are becoming kind of like, well, figuratively and literally the middleman between like a design and animation team and like, you know, the end client or, or your partners. Yep. And it's kind of sort of mediating those those two wants. Like you, you want to deliver the correct thing to your client or partner um, and you also want to push and advocate for your team doing the best that they can. That window for you actually comes a, a, little, a little more compressed as to like what you specifically want to contribute. Um, it is more about like what's, what's the big picture thinking. So what do you give up and what's the best place to contribute? You kind of need to lose your personal ego a little bit and have more of a like team ego if that's a if that's a thing as a director you do less work on the tools how do you find satisfaction i think a lot of that comes from actually being kind of the champion for the people doing the work yep i still dip my hands into it every you know 10th project or something trying to carve out some time to still work in the pipeline one, I think like, you know, all of us all still crave that, but two, it gives you like, I guess, more empathy for what your team is actually doing, right? Because we can become a little detached from the day-to-day process of making things. Aside from that, like there is something really satisfying about sort of having a vision and seeing it fulfilled. What movies, music, magazines inspired you when you were growing up? Akira. I saw that when I was like 11 or 12. It kind of blew my mind. Why did it blow your mind? I think because it was distinctly different from anything I'd seen to that point. And also it was really confusing for like the preteen John Gorman, which actually kind of made it more compelling. I must have rewatched that thing like a dozen times between ages of like 11 and 13. Cool. When did you discover motion design and how did you become passionate about it? I was just starting at university when kind of like that first wave of what would now be called motion graphics companies sort of started, MK12 and so on. It was an interesting time. Like it was really motion graphic. Exactly. Not motion design at that point. Totally. What were inspiring you in that period? 
I actually started studying like a classic graphic design background and then I kind of moved into the multimedia realm. So sort of interactive, it was kind of flash at the time was the thing. And then as I got more into that, realized it's not really what I wanted to do because I was always trying to find ways to tell stories in like these interactive experiences. And that, that was kind of congruent with the start of these like motion graphics companies. (laughs) I remember sort of looking at, pre-motionography, even pre-tween days of just like, you know, portfolio sites of 300 pixel wide quick times of work. Yep. And yeah, I think it was it was really sort of finding that combination of good classic graphic design and animation, which I had a, a long held interest in. So it was kind of a no brainer. I remember when Buck made real little small movies like that. It's interesting. I have a whole bucket somewhere of inspirational videos that are 600 by 600. <laughs> I, I'm sure I do on an old CD somewhere. So, if you could briefly describe your career path. Upon graduating, I taught very briefly. I freelanced around Melbourne for about two years. Then I joined Buck as a designer and animator in the almost 13 years since. I've sort of moved through a lot of production positions of being a designer and animator, sort of concept artist, storyboard artist, previs, look dev, compositing, and then settled more into like traditional art direction and now creative direction. Cool. Over the years, which project do you think was the most successful or satisfied you the most? The work that we've done with the IBM design team, I think that was that was a really satisfying process. Um, the output was great and also I learned a bunch on those films. Yep. And the other one would be something we wrapped up last year, a series of short form animated films for um, It's Nice That and MailChimp. They were an awesome experience. And the IBM ones, they're a bit different to what you usually do. Just explain that a little bit more. Five years ago, we started working directly with the IBM design team um, to kind of make a little bit of a bridge. Um, so they have a uh, a big web portal dubbed the IBM design language portal. Yep. Um, that's really about like IBM's philosophy around design and then how that is expressed as a language. So a lot of that is like guidance and specific tools. And they they kind of had this problem where the philosophy was a little bit hard to to see what that link was to how you actually put it into practice. Yep. Um, so we produced this this series of films that kind of were little conceptual bridges that just gave you a nice little handhold into how, how to actually use this language in the in the day to day. And that kind of evolved into a few more films, and then actually sort of more of like a motion branding exercise. So developing IBM's approach to animation as a brand like how do you animate for ibm was something we helped them define so it was like a graphic design style guide but with animation exactly yeah cool and now i want to talk a little bit about failures have you had any failures or setbacks in your career and what did you learn from them I can't think of anything catastrophic, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, innumerable like small failures. Yep. I think they're kind of essential. It's also maybe something that I've got better at as I've got older of like not necessarily dwelling less on failures, but sort of 
just letting them go as again this is totally a cliche but as learning experiences because maybe like failures aren't sort of um a warning sign of what you shouldn't do and more sort of as something you can learn that you know i'm not i'm not great at that but maybe i'm good at helping people accomplish something i failed at (laughs) give us an example of something where you've learned a lot i worked a lot in 3d uh, at the start of my career at buck and i'm not not great at it yep i'm a terrible modeler i don't i don't understand like the texturing process i was an okay lighter um but what i learned from that is that really how to talk to 3d artists um so you know i wasn't great at it but i can talk to it really well yep. uh not having to go through that translation process like being able to speak the same language and use the same like vocabulary has been incredibly useful it helped you become a, a better manager of 3d artists yeah absolutely the more that you can think in that mindset and articulate uh, ideas in the way that specific artists are going to understand, then it's just a much smoother and better process. Cool. What was the hardest thing that you had to learn to progress your career? That you can't do everything. Australia, especially at the time and still now, has sort of boutique-sized studios. By default, sort of everyone learns how to do a bit of everything. Which is great and it makes for amazing generalists, but, you know, especially as you start to get more into direction, that's not feasible to be like the designer and animator and concept artist and lighter and compositor and so on. You do have to to give stuff up and that's definitely a positive. Cool. This is intense. <laughs> uh, I've got to try and get some fun into it. I'm not very fun. Alrighty, let's get back into it. Okay. Could you tell us a little bit about your skills you developed early on in your career and where you worked in Australia? I started off, I was actually doing an internship with the sort of Swinburne work placement program, um, but I freelanced at XYZ Studios sort of concurrent with that um, with another friend of mine who was working there. Um, And then shortly after graduating, also 2119, and how many years did you work in Melbourne before you uh, went to work in Buck? I would say paid work was about three and a half years. How did you get the job at Buck? And is there a story behind that? Yeah, absolutely. So what is that story? Towards the end of my time in Melbourne, so this would have been the latter half of 2007, I sort of cut my first and only reel together, Yep, which was a lot of commercial work from XYZ and and a couple of other pieces and then a bit of student work and some personal work. Yep. I mean, I guess I should caveat all of this, that this was a very different environment of like posting reels. Yep. But yeah, I I cut together that reel and it got picked up by, I think it was still called Tween at the time and Stash. I don't want to give the wrong impression of this because it sounds like I didn't do anything, but it kind of was just a, was sort of self-fulfilling. It, it got picked up by those those outlets I mentioned, and I, I just got a few emails, one of which was from Ryan Honey at Buck LA. And the process was actually surprisingly low-key, like very stressful on my end, but we really just had like a couple of emails back and forth, and I think we talked twice on the phone, and then I accepted the job as a designer and animator. 
And what was it like for a you know young boy to be heading off to LA? Uh, what was the experience like? Well, first you flatter me, Matt. I wasn't that young, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was it was hard. So um, I flew over there in end of January in two thousand and eight definitely naive about what the situation was going to be. In those days, Buck LA was in downtown LA, which was kind of sketchy. And then I managed to secure myself a short stay apartment in an even sketchier part of town, uh, just on the other side of the freeway. So that was, that was pretty, pretty confronting for like the first, the first month. But um, I quickly made some friends who helped me find a place in Los Feliz. But yeah, it's a, it's a big step. What sort of work were you doing back then and how has it evolved? Back then it was still very much motion graphics was, I don't know, 60% of our work. And then there was like longer, more narrative commercial pieces. It was kind of good. We we did a bit of everything. So I'd say the first couple of years there was a lot of end tags, but also on the the other end of that, we got to to pitch and produce like a lot of interesting projects what were some of the challenges you faced when you moved to America? The difficulties in navigating like being an expat, how the pay structure works in the US and getting a social security number and finding a place to live. So all of kind of the logistical stuff was probably the most challenging part personally. What were the people like and what was the atmosphere like? Everyone's super friendly and chill and... It's a happy party there at Buck. It is. <laughs> uh, all right. We, we need to get into the dirt. So, in New York, it can be dirty at times. Um, <laughs> yeah, tell us a little bit about working in New York. It's a little bit of a gravitational pull. I think that's kind of what I love about it, that New York does the work for you. It pulls all of those people into one place. So, do you find it as a competitive environment? Yes, but in a good way. And maybe this is like, you know, me being a little bit sheltered or or naive, but I feel like it's not a bad competitiveness. Like, I think there's a lot of support there. Um, Like, I have friends at other studios and, you know, we work with a lot of direct-to-client relationships in New York. Yep. And it's kind of surprising how sort of open and, and friendly everyone is. Yeah, it's a good competition. How did the Buck Studios change from when you arrived to now? So when I first started, we were probably roughly 30 people in LA and I think about 20 people in New York. And those were the only two studios. And now I think LA is pushing a bit over 200. We have close to 100, if not over 100 people in New York, Sydney's got a lot bigger. I think they're pushing 30 now and we now have an Amsterdam studio. So versus when I first started there, it was pretty young and scrappy and we were <laughs> we were sort of figuring out a lot of things as we went. And do you work on the projects from LA or do you just solo to New York? We do both our own projects and we, we share work and collaborate a lot too. I think something we've been really good at is actually not sort of working necessarily as one, you know, big machine. We kind of build teams per project. So, 
you know, something like IBM was just, you know, five of us working on on one project with one client yep. versus there might be bigger sort of complex pipelines that have a bunch of artists in LA and a bunch of artists in New York and, you know, an art director in Sydney or something. So it's kind of nice that with that scale, uh, we get to we get to build teams uh, to do just one thing. Now we're going to talk about creative direction. Mm-hmm. Describe your team that you direct. We build our teams bespoke to like what the brief is and, and what the demands of that project are. It really depends. And what would an average team be then? I don't know if there is such a thing anymore. Uh, <laughs> like probably. Oh, come on, you've got, you got to answer the questions. <laughs> I think the last. Give, give us an example of a team. Uh, so I, I think the last time we did like a, a 2D 60 second spot is probably sort of the most traditional thing I can think of. Yep. Was kind of myself, an art director, and then two designers, four to five animators, both Cell and After Effects, and a producer, of course. Cool. All righty. And if you could tell us about your personal directing style. I think... Um, well, you sound pretty relaxed. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't say slow and steady, but I I would say considered. Yep. Like, I try not to be reactionary to a lot of things. Can you expand on that a little? So, I I think part of that is, like, when we're initially coming up with direction, I sort of want to know everything. Like, the the more research you can do up front, the better. Yep. To really sort of, like, define what those core important elements of a project are. Because I think it's a lot of the time it's maybe less about solving problems, although there is a good degree of that. It's more about like finding out what those fundamental truths of a project are and then the right way to express them. And those expressions are usually sort of take form of story, however you want to apply that. Well, how would you describe your management style? This is kind of cliche, but it is very collaborative. I definitely have like opinions and thoughts and like maybe become a bit of an arbiter of like final decisions, but we continually try to like bring teams in early of like all stages of production so that even if you're not working on a project currently, you know what's coming down the pipe and again, you have context of it. And then by contrast, I think little personal sprints of kind of getting your thoughts in action um, to give clear direction and how do you react when things are going wrong? Kind of depends on what type of wrong. There's sort of the mechanics of stuff that can go wrong. Of you know, you've vastly under- underestimated the amount of animation, or you know, we have the wrong tools in place to do what we wanted to do. And in those cases, you you just kind of figure it out. What about problems with ideas or concepts? But when it's like conceptual or on the client end, I really think there's not a lot you can't solve just by like working together. Because especially on the client end, like they have as much invested in it as you do. So it's usually just figuring out like where where those issues are and, and coming up with a plan together on how to solve them. Cool. Alrighty. And the average day as a creative director at Buck, what does that look like? Pre-pandemic, <laughs> um, 
in the New York studio and LA studio, actually, we start a little late at 10. So I usually sort of, uh, depending on the day, start a little bit earlier than that, just to kind of plan out my day of like what projects I'm on, uh, look at my calendar and figure out what the, the shape of my day looks like. I sort of use a a sort of key three thing checklist of stuff I need to do and everything else is a bonus. Yep. We have a couple of department check-ins in the morning. Typically it'll be like dailies calls with specific teams after that or meetings as it would have been then. And then afternoons are typically either like working on specific tasks of, you know, putting treatments or pitches together or reviewing work or client calls. It's usually a lot more flexible. Yep. And then obviously for the last year, it's all of that plus more Zoom or meet <laughs> calls. So you're mostly doing direction. You're mostly like talking to people and having meetings. I would say like 60 to 70% of my day is, is that. Alrighty. What are the main things you need to learn from the brief to create a strong pitch? This is kind of a, a bit of a cop-out answer, but like everything. Because usually, you know, you're, you're given what the end deliverable is. And in most cases, you know, there's sort of the, the seed of a concept of how to produce this thing. Yep. But I think context is key. So we always try to eke out like sort of how they got to the point of creating this brief. Like what is the background to actually get to the point where you're giving us this this consolidated list of, of items to satisfy. Yep. And beyond that, like tone is really important. And I'm not sure you can really really pull that out of like a written brief. And this is why those kickoff calls are always so important, even if unfortunately on the client or agency side, they've given them multiple times already, is to really figure out like tone. Yeah. A device we use a lot, just just as an example, like if we're talking about a VO artist, trying to define who that VO talent would be in a perfect world, for instance, gives you sort of those those kickoff points to figure out exactly like the right sort of language and and tone you should be using. Okay. What are the main challenges to create a high-quality pitch that will impress the ad agency or client? Oh, time. I think it's always time. With with some rare exceptions, like so, you don't have enough time to do it. It's too intense. I think it's not necessarily like enough time to do it. It's more sort of like enough time to to really nail down everything to a degree that you're happy with it, which I think is is you know however much time you have is never going to be enough. Yep. But I think to actually make it successful, I think you know you want to be able to point at like what the end thing is going to look at, which isn't always I think necessarily a fully finished like look and feel. Um, it can be more sort of a composite view. But yeah, I think you want to give them an impression of what the final thing is going to look at, but also a little bit of process of like how you get there. Like explain the the thinking and the steps that lead up to like that big idea. How many people do you averagely put on a pitch and how long do you usually do it for if it's time's an issue? There's a, a complicated formula there between like what the the ultimate budget, if the job is awarded, is going to be, and the production method, and of course like how many people we have available. Yep. 
so that's part of our income incoming process actually of like you know can we actually show up for this pitch and really put out the work that we want to do but i think at minimum it's typically like three to four of us if it's you know a huge job with big demands like every once in a while we'll go kind of all out and treat it like a a mini project and do you ever get beat by an individual yes yes i can't think of a specific example but yeah definitely there's there's been a few a few times where they've chosen to go with like you know a duo in europe for instance yeah yeah as a like a person who ran a small studio it's always scary when you're going up for a project against even quoting for a project against a big company mm-hmm. so it's good to see that occasionally the little guy wins oh absolutely cool all righty so what are the main reasons why you lose a pitch sometimes it's like you haven't satisfied that asked or solved that problem as well as someone else yep sometimes it's budget been a few times where we've i I wouldn't suggest everyone take this approach every time but sometimes we've been given a brief and decided to go against brief and just pitch something that we felt really strongly about more often than not they've probably failed um (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes sometimes it does just come down to to numbers and relationships like you know to to do the thing that we're proposing as the the deliverable is more than they want to spend or more than they can spend. Yep. And sometimes, you know, they have a pre-existing relationship with another group or they've done work with them before and they're just a better fit and the pitch process is more of like a formality. Any number of those things. And, and what do you personally think about pitching? Do you like it or do you hate it or Oh, that's that's a that's a complicated question and answer, Matt. <laughs> um, so, I I think there's positives and negatives. I think, you know, obviously the financial investment isn't great. That you know, especially if you're a smaller sh- shop or you're running on very tight margins, like making that investment in pitching because it is an investment can be really tricky. It's not necessarily the best model. I mean, it sounds like a nightmare if all my job was was pitching. Um, but on the other hand, like from a creative perspective, I know we, we already talked about like, you know, there's never enough time to do exactly what you want to do for a pitch. Yeah. But it's a, it's they're good exercises, I think, in like having to work out those muscles of like coming to a conclusion and a, a perspective relatively quickly. It's funny. When I worked as a junior in a big company, I didn't mind pitching. Mm-hmm. But when I had my own studio, I hated it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, when it's your own money and time, like it seems like a process that is just like it, it's sort of in sometimes it's like gambling. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've we've definitely had projects that I mean, I guess on the on the positive side, I don't think pitching is usually an entire waste. Obviously, that's easy to say when I'm not doing the all of the, the the accounting for our company, but like we always learn something from them. But you know, you can't do that indefinitely. Do you mind if we just have a little break now and thank our sponsors? I would love to. If you're looking for a fantastic mobile workstation that is designed for the entertainment and creative industries, 
whether it's for processing complex 3D or 2D workflows in design, multimedia, illustration, animation, CG or visual effects, MSI's high-end mobile laptops provide one of the best solutions available for creative professionals. You can find out more at msi.com. Welcome back. Are you ready to go? Yep, whenever you are. Alrighty, let's get back into it. What are the key things that you need to ask in the brief to find out what the client wants? I think a lot of our process these days is, I guess, exploratory, especially with our direct-to-client work. We have a, a feeling out period where it's like less of filling out like a form and more more conversational, I guess, around what they're, they're really trying to accomplish because a lot of the time they they don't necessarily know. Okay. So I think part of that is like, you know, getting to know and, and researching who they are as a brand and then specifically like what problem they're trying to solve and then, you know, that opens up further questions. What makes a good briefing meeting? I think openness or maybe openness isn't the right word actually. I think a bit of vulnerability and just want to be comfortable with each other that like you're hearing hearing what they're saying. Yep. This is an old metaphor, but it's like don't play golf, play tennis. Like you're you're not just in the room like trying to tell each other what you think about things. You're actually listening to each other and having a conversation and a back and forth. That quickly becomes more about like discussing ideas rather than you know, a list of demands. So you're sort of building an idea together mm-hmm. is what you're saying. Yep. Uh, I like the tennis thing. That was pretty clever. <laughs> I, I wish I could take credit for it. I don't think it's mine. <laughs> Not golf, <laughs> tennis. Uh, I should say that to my students as well. Uh, what is your process for developing ideas once you've received the brief? I think a lot of it is sort of dissecting that brief and figuring out what those those really core fundamental ideas are. And then usually you have a goal of like a specific deliverable or a specific like problem we're trying to solve or a message we're trying to get out there. Yep. And I think if you have a good grip on like what those fundamental ideas are and you know what the the end destination is, it kind of every point of the process and especially up front you can you can kind of rapidly iterate on ideas and just hold them up against those those like truths i want to talk a little bit about mood boards do you do a lot of mood boards and what are you trying to achieve with a mood board presentation definitely do a lot of mood boards i don't think or very rarely like they would be our sole source of like informing visuals yep they're usually just like part of that recipe, especially in like the pitch the pitch phase that, you know, maybe you've got some some initial storyboards and a couple of like draft ideas as like layouts or something. And you're kind of just using those mood boards very much as like a gap filler of like, imagine this, but executed this way. Yeah. I personally tailor them a lot. It's typically not like here's a mood board for the project. It's like here's a mood board for our opinion on color in this project, or here's a mood board for specifically how we're going to light things. Um, so, uh, yeah, they're kind of like maybe impression boards would be a, a better way to describe how we use them. Do you use mood boards internally or do you use them generally just for the client? 
Uh, both. On the client end, we're usually using them to fill gaps to sort of like help give you that imagination crutch to see how something is going to turn out. And our internal ones are probably a lot more specific. Like we might have uh, for Sherwin Williams, for instance, the construction of some of those animals are very much inspired by like origami techniques. So we might have a specific board for like, these are the type of folds and forms that we want to use to, to create that baboon, for instance. What what outcome are you trying to get back from when you show the client the mood board? Really, it's like making sure that that's resonating with them as a general impression. And if it's not, we can update them and, and try something else. So you're not looking for no. Well, we don't like that mood. I, I guess we're looking for like the, <laughs> the improv, like yes and or yes or. Okay. So now I want to talk about storyboards. What are the different types of storyboards you develop at Buck and why? I would actually say that we storyboard everything. Experiences, so like creative technology work um, is still storyboarded as like how someone might might experience that in, in real life. Um, so yeah, we're, we're big believers in, in storyboarding. Yep. It ranges the spectrum. So, you know, something like IBM has boards that are more kind of wireframes than they are like drawn storyboards. It's more sort of, yeah, sketching out graphic ideas yep. through to more narrative boards, which are probably closer to like live action shooting boards where we're really looking to establish action and camera and the main story beats. And what sort of projects would they be on? The one that jumps to mind is the work that we've done recently for MailChimp in kind of every in every form, uh, both the hand-drawn stuff and the, the short form 3D pieces we did. And any other kinds? Like when you design graphics for, mm-hmm. you know, something with typography and, yeah. The gr- more graphical projects, usually we would even sort of consider them first round designs. So you don't, in the graphical projects, you don't end up with storyboards that look like the end product. Like you're trying to achieve your storyboard in the end product. We definitely do. I think it's more just like, to me, I think storyboard and design become somewhat indistinguishable when they're very graphic projects, like the the IBM films that we discussed. Our storyboards are sort of our first round of design and it's very incremental from there. So this is a, so would you call this the design then what we were talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're locking off specific moments from those boards, like in color and like fleshed out to how it's going to look in that, in the deliverable, then I'd probably call them keyframes or like style frames. Okay, so we're, we're in that, do you do style frames? Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, I think they go hand in hand. When it comes to style boards, how do you approach them differently to storyboards? So we would generally end up mapping out like the entire arc of a piece in storyboard. And then it's like those keyframes or those specific design lockups that we'll push into like style frames. So when you get the style frames, they're sort of to get the finished look. Yeah, exactly. So you can you can present both in tandem of like this is what our our arc is going to be in like animation or the narrative and then at particular beats we can point to specific frames that give you an impression of like 
pretty much what it's going to look like as a finished product. And then with the style frames, do you present them with the storyboards at the same time? Yeah, that's actually something we've increasingly started to do. Like I think in the past we would have like, you know, here's our here's sort of our top level thinking and maybe here's some reference and here's our storyboard and here's our style frames. And now it's more of like an amalgam of all those things in one treatment. So we put a bit of thinking up front and then you might jump straight into like a big hero style frame and then we'll talk about like the first section of story and then kind of intersperse that with a beat of like, and this is what it's going to look like. And maybe here's some reference attached to that. So that as we're presenting, you're kind of like building up an impression of this thing as a whole, not as like sections to get to a couple of a couple of frames. And with 3D look dev, how does that fit into the style frames? We've got a, a terrific CG team. Um, I'm consistently blown away by what they accomplish in the time they have. Yep. So I think for a pitch, like if it is a, a true 3D pro- project, like obviously we'll try to get something as close to how it's actually look as possible. Yep. But I think it's also fine to kind of like have them save their development work or like pull out pieces of that that kind of talk about specific things. You're not able to show exactly what it's going to be. So, you know, you've got storyboards and reference and like elements of what the final thing could be. So if you're talking about our approach to lighting and texture, maybe there's something we can pull out of one of those style frames we've developed that can talk just about lighting and texture. We try to make something good and evocative and then reuse as many pieces of it as we can. Okay. What resources do you require materials from the client or ad agency before you start the storyboards? A first round script is obviously like a no brainer. Um, not a lot of specifics, honestly. I think a lot of it is more around like mood. Yep. And this is probably like something that's more of a discussion than it is like actual materials. Since we're really just trying to capture like the right tone and mood in a piece, music reference is great and a base script is kind of really all you need. What size do you actually develop your storyboards, pixel size? And what applications do you use to develop them? These days, I think everyone does it a little bit differently. However, we're delivering the project is like the the ratio we show it in. But we've used kind of everything at this point, especially the last couple of years from Photoshop uh, through to people who are doing them in Procreate now if they are a graphic project like Illustrator or even Figma these days. I never did them at the actual res. If it was a 4K or 2K or even a HD, I always did my boards at around a standard def size for the actual graphics for presentations or a bit bigger. Do you, do you usually do them smaller? Whenever I personally did them, we always did them at native res just to like basically minimize any confusion what does native res mean uh, so whatever the delivery is going to be then we would do them at that size okay mostly not because like we need to show them that big in client reviews or anything but more as like we get into designing from those storyboard frames or producing animatics um, which then go on to become your base edit there's just no like translation errors there like we're always working at the correct dimensions from the get-go 
And what is the usual budget for a storyboard development and how long does this project usually take? If you have some examples, that'll be great. Typically, depending on the pitch, um, like there's quite a few pitches that we won't storyboard the whole thing, but we'll like try to select a chunk that feels like a good beat from that story. If it's something narrative like the MailChimp work, for instance, we'll pick like a beat from that story and storyboard just that chunk to start figuring out like the rhythm and tone and like how we're going to frame things. And that kind of gives you a base point for how to storyboard everything else. Yep. Something like Hypervenom from memory. This was this was quite a few years ago now. Each of those to storyboard was probably like a week and a half with multiple reviews, uh, maybe even two weeks actually now that I think about it. But we sort of got a head start on that during the pitch process. As opposed to something like IBM, which is like, that's kind of just the first round of design. So there's not really a delineation there. It's like storyboard and design are one thing. And that sort of is probably about a two to three week process. Okay. And is that someone working on it full time for two to three weeks or is that just the turnaround time? It's a bit of both. So sometimes sometimes it'll be two artists like working for for a week and a half or something. Or in the case of IBM, we usually had just a really small team of like designers and they're usually the same people who animate the end spot. So that'd be like two people from start to finish all the way through to delivery. And do you have any written notes with your storyboards and what are they trying to achieve? Oh, absolutely. When we present storyboards, I can't think of a single time we haven't attached like descriptions to each and every frame. The three mandates when when these apply is obviously like the voiceover in that happening in that section and then a description of action. Yep. I think if anything, we probably have a habit of overboarding things. You know, if you kind of look at it as a sequence, there might be a beat that only takes like a second or two, but it might read in context as like five seconds of, of action. So having that little note to really describe what is happening and like what you're trying to get across with this sequence is really important. Okay. What are the changes that you've made to the storyboarding process over the years to improve it? Still to today, um, but especially in the past, we probably overboarded things. Yep. Like you're, you're trying to figure out every little beat in, in storyboard uh, rather than the main points of your arc and then kind of leaving the in-betweens up to like animatic or, or previs or, or whoever that's going to continue. So actually maybe being slightly less prescriptive with the details, uh, the, the narrative details, not the, the drawn details. How close are your storyboards to the finished product? Sometimes almost one-to-one and sometimes not at all. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> that's, that's outrageous. You're always giving me yes, no. <laughs> that's a very open-ended question. It's a, they're always going to be different. What was the question again? Do you remember? Before we started laughing? Um. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember. Are they are they one to one to the finished product or different? That's right. So, are you aiming to make them one to one to the finished product? I mean, ideally, yes, but also, I guess this ladders up to the questions we we were just talking about. That I think we've tried to progressively get like less detailed in our arcs, so that there is more room to kind of improvise when when you start to figure it out. 
I think increasingly, like, we want to be very prescriptive about, like, what those really important points of a story are and hit those as close as we can. Then the the meat between those points. Yep. Leave that up to a lot of interpretation and, like, evolution as we actually get into, you know, designing and animating these things since you kind of don't want to be overcommitted to, to an idea. How do you present your storyboards to the client? Over the course of my career, and this is definitely for the better, it's changed less from, you know, we put together a treatment and send it off, which isn't awesome. Yep. I would say we always present our treatments these days, especially storyboards, I think is really important. We just have like a slides deck or sometimes like a keynote. Um, and it really is just either, you know, when, when we could do it in person, we would all be around a, you know, big screen and, and look at them together. These days it's, it's all through Zoom or Meet or what have you. But it really is going frame by frame and talking through like what that arc is. Yep. And I think that's probably the most important point that it's kind of like, it's almost like reading a storybook for adults. Like you want to convince them of those beats and sort of a little bit like the um, the mood board discussion that you want to fill in those gaps of like what the, the mood is and the tone and the action and like the vibe you're going to get from this thing by describing it to them. What are the biggest challenges of doing this online and how do you overcome them? The thing that I've really struggled with the last year is getting a read for how people are receiving it. Especially in like a remote situation, you know, you want you want the presentation nice and big in the screen. Unfortunately, that means that everyone on the actual call is like smaller than a postage stamp. Yeah. Kind of reading the room isn't as possible as it was. That's a real challenge. What do you think the important methods are with selling your idea? Actually, not talking them through it, but actually selling them to get them to agree to your concept. I think the first part to convincing them is actually like having conviction in your own work. Like if you don't actually believe in what you've produced, then they're probably not going to believe it either. But I think part of that is also not pretending you have all the answers. Because like if you look at it from a Mac review, that's kind of weird, right? To come into a room after getting like one kickoff, one kickoff brief and having a completely concrete, fully fleshed out plan of how you're going to achieve something because that's never going to happen. I actually think having a bit of humility and vulnerability when you're presenting those ideas goes a really long way to show that maybe we haven't figured out entirely everything, but we've got a really good start point and we feel really, really good about that start point. Yep. Maybe that's the focus when, whenever I like try to present something of like, you know, we're at step one and we have x amount of steps to go but you know step one is is great as an art director how do you go about improving the designs of storyboards and concepts through feedback part of it is cohesion and consistency like that's you know one of the key responsibilities of an art director yeah to make sure it's all looking consistent Absolutely. Um, so I think I think that's a big one. And then the context of that art direction tonally, if it's if it's hitting the right notes. Yep. It's at either end of the spectrum that like you want to give very top level feedback of, you know, as a 
as a holistic thing, does this all feel like feel like the same deal? And then very specific feedback of, you know, like the curve of this arm is incorrect or that pose isn't quite reading. Yep. That's generally like the approach I've always taken of kind of min min maxing that feedback. And with the graphical design storyboards, if something's not working, what sort of how do you turn it around with the artist? I think a lot of it is a conversation. Sometimes like maybe it's just not exactly the right artist for that that exact job. Um, so that might take a bit of extra extra work. But a lot of it with the graphic jobs, even if they're not systems, there is like a system to how you're designing it. So it's probably like defining those constraints and like considerations up front so that everyone's kind of aware of them from the get-go. It's kind of like doing a, a mini style guide for a project. Give us an example. Like, do you look at the thing and it's not working and then you give them an example of what you think it should be or do you tell them to go and create the example? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you actually, the mechanics of giving your feedback? There's times where we'll have reference on hand of like, and this is always a bit of a cop out of of an art director, I think of like, you know, just kind of make it like this, as long as you can point to specifically what in that reference you're you're trying to achieve. And some of it, like you said, is a lot more mechanical of like, maybe we need to sit down and sort of examine the fundamentals of this design of like, you know, are we, are we snapping it to the grid? Are we using the right type of shape language? Is our hierarchy working? Do you often say, go away and give me a couple of different examples? Personally, I don't go for options a lot. Maybe early on, if we're doing like just sort of pie in the sky development of like, what what could this thing like feel and look like from the get go will will pursue a lot of different directions. But I think as you start to sort of narrow down in that funnel of actually producing like specific frames um, or storyboards or designs, I feel like incrementalism is, well, <laughs> incrementalism is kind of a dirty word, but um, like iterating, being, iterating, that's, that's yeah. what I'm looking for. Um, yeah. Being iterative in that process is, uh, is more effective. When you do your storyboards, do you usually just do one set or do you sometimes do two sets? Give them options. Typically if the job is awarded and we like, we know what, what this exercise is going to be. I'm always on the side of just doing a version of storyboards that you really believe in, maybe doing like parallel sections. Like if there's two different ways to approach, you know, part of that sequence, maybe we will do like an A and B section. On the other hand, if like we're doing small, small sprints for a pitch, for instance, I think, yeah, totally like go, go for it, do multiple sets. Yep. As long as there's enough to, differentiate why you're doing multiple sets like if they're very distinct directions then sure if it's just like minor variations then that just gets messy and overcomplicated. and in these explainer videos they both have written scripts do buck usually develop the scripts sometimes in the case of mailchimp kin was pretty much solely in charge of the script we made some or recommended some minor edits. Waze was mostly on the client side, but again, we sort of helped edit and like change some of the language to make it more concise here and there. Whereas on the complete other end of the spectrum, something like 
the MailChimp All in a Day's Work or the IBM films. We scripted those from, from the ground up. And how important is the script to the success of the project? Uh, incredibly. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think that's something I've actually become a lot better at over the years of, one, sometimes I, I write scripts myself, but two, also you kind of, you develop this internal formula for like delivery and pacing just based on kind of like how it's structured and the word count. So I feel like I've gotten very good at like guessing duration and delivery just based on scripts. And do the client often create challenges around the scripts? Uh, and how do you deal with those? Yes. <laughs> so many challenges. Um, usually I think a lot of people fall into the trap of assuming that who you're talking to has no context of like what you're, what you're trying to tell them. So people over-articulate or over-explain in their scripts. And sometimes they just get wordy or they get, overly jargony yep i feel like when possible um we even try to involve a professional copywriter to like sort of be the counterpoint to wherever those scripts are coming from to be like have you have you considered trimming this down or like saying this in a different way just that one it's like one it's aligning to the brief so usually that means more concise since you know we're an animated medium that's that's very short and two that it's like compelling and clear So I'm going to move on to talking about explainer videos. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about a few particular projects. Yeah, of course. I highly recommend that people go and check out the website and look at the work at mastersofmotion.com.au. It will make this part of the discussion more enjoyable. Okay. All right, let's do this. Yeah, whenever you're ready. Okay. Could you briefly explain the uh, project you did for MailChimp? Uh, what was the what did it visually look like? What was the story, and how did you deliver it? Yeah, so um, <laughs> MailChimp changed the changes as it was as it was called. Um, we worked with Kin and MailChimp on that, and it's basically for a foundation that MailChimp has started to sort of enable local philanthropists. Yep in cities around the US and I think ultimately worldwide rather than like just have big donors give money to people who don't really know what's going on in the community. Um, okay. So the, the process for that was really like to get that idea across of like essentially MailChimp is giving money and assistance to people in the community already doing good work. Okay. And we really built a story around that with Kin that this – it's very like very rhymy, but it's like okay. big changes versus small changes, and you want to trust the small changes. Um, so our approach to that was basically like if we're working within the Mailchimp illustration language, which um which they they already have like pretty well codified as being very loose and and scribbly and and illustrative. If we kind of build a cast of characters that are like locals in their communities and sort of make their their small changer superpowers like visual. Um, so, you know, local gardeners riding big emu watering cans and housing advocates who can move whole streets and so on. And yeah, it's all it's all in the MailChimp uh, illustration language. So a lot of flat colors and uh, and hand illustrated stuff. 
And did you pitch for this project? Uh, we did not. So we actually had a relationship with Kin um, beforehand, and it was not a pro bono job, but it was um, it was definitely a charity. Well, it is a charity. Um, yep. So the the budget wasn't great, but you know it was a good cause and something we believed in. So so we partnered with them to make it happen. And what were the biggest visual challenges in the MailChimp explainer video? I imagine this is probably an obvious one, but like it's it's a hand animated aesthetic, um, and especially like the the MailChimp um, illustration language relies a lot on very like brushy, inky sort of dry pen aesthetic. Sometimes some like graphite shading, and it's a fairly long piece, so that's that's a, a big workload to make that happen. Yeah. But, you know, we, we sort of developed some interesting procedural tricks in, in After Effects and some other cleanup processes that sort of fooled you into thinking After Effects passes were actually hand-drawn. With the Waves job, which is a more commercial project that you worked on, did you pitch for that? Uh, weirdly, we didn't pitch for that one either. Yep. So that was actually a really compressed timeline. I think we had, it might have been four weeks. Um, it was a, a year-end film of almost like an animated, fun annual report. So their deadline was was looming very quickly. Yeah. And what was the development process like on the Waze project? Super compressed timeline. Um, and it was kind of an interesting one that they were imminently rebranding their illustration language. Um, so we kind of worked from the basis of that. Yep. It was very similar to a, a lot of projects uh, that we storyboarded out from the basic like script blocks that they had from their annual report. And yeah, storyboarded in grayscale and then sort of created or adapted the illustration language around that to like how we drew cars and created landscapes and and uh, sort of extrapolated from from some stuff they're already working on. So basically, I just want to talk a little bit about timing edits on projects like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you trying to achieve through them? We storyboard everything, so like we always have at least a basis to work from, and. We don't really differentiate edits so much anymore. Yep. In the past, maybe we would do a, a automatic, which then became an animatic, which then becomes like your first edit and you start dropping in shots. Yep. I think these days it's more like our automatic is edit V1. So it's it's always like iterative from from there out that, you know, we'll do a scratch VO and maybe have a reference track and we're just constantly building on top of that that first base. There's obviously a lot of development in a long piece like these ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, with your animatics, how important are they? Uh, and do you like use them to get the client to approve them? Yeah, before you start production. Definitely, it's not always an official step there of like you know, this is the automatic versus the animatic versus like first round animation approvals. Yep. It's more of like a general timing lock. And I think this is kind of just always a conversation. We've actually these days started giving people like a production sort of reference of like these are the stages of production production, and this is where we are. We can get 
lock on general timing without being sort of really tied to it. So there's always the understanding that like, you know, things are going to shift a little bit and like this performance might take a little longer or we might have to cut it. But as long as like we're hitting the beats and the rhythm of it feels right, then that's what we're looking for approval on. We get a lock, but there's a bit of movement mm-hmm. on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, it's, a, it's a soft lock. <laughs> a soft lock. <laughs> uh, I don't know. When I'm in my studio, I was, like, I was really trying to get locks because that's where the production overruns happened. Mm-hmm. I talked to Raul Marx about locking off stuff and he's like, HBO. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and what do you think makes a successful explainer video? Obviously, it's explaining like whatever you whatever you need to explain. But I think attaching emotion to that, like because you're not just delivering something intellectually, like you're trying to you're trying to convince someone or make them feel some way about what you're telling them. If you can make an explainer that makes you feel a particular way that resonates with what the message is then that's success yeah the irony is is that i honestly feel that's the story that makes it mm-hmm. it's the script if you got the script and the voiceover yep you're 90 percent done what are the biggest risks and things you worry about the most when you start developing an explainer video time is always the big one that you have so much so much time to produce it, but also so much time to explain something concisely. And sometimes that's a really a really big ask when they're, you know, big heady concepts that you need to get across in, you know, 60 seconds or whatever it is. So yeah, I think just making sure that the scope of what you're trying to communicate works within the duration you have, and then doing that effectively and concisely in that time. And do you think the budgets are good for these sort of videos? Because I found at the low end or the middle end, it's like companies just don't have budgets because the project, you know, the explainer takes so long, it's a lot of animation. Yeah, I would I would agree. I mean, some of them are explainers as like brand anthems almost, which are usually better because like, they, they are explaining an idea, but it is sort of like, you know, it's it's anthemic. It's to, you know, inspire people around that idea um, as opposed to like literal explainers, which are just trying to trying to impart knowledge. Um, yeah, definitely the, the, the budget's usually a challenge. Cool. How have you evolved as a director over the years and what techniques and methods have you changed? How I've evolved is to be a lot more a lot more open-minded about like how we execute things. Yep. Uh, I think a lot of us fall into the trope of like, we want to do things our way or, you know, I just want to work in 2D or I just want to direct cell animation projects. I feel like I actually get a lot of joy from kind of this, this very frenetic approach to, to, to project types and, and mediums and executions. Yep. So I I really enjoy that diversity and also really embracing collaboration. I know I've I've brought this up a couple of times, but it's it's not just like it is a crutch, it is something like I really believe in and I think we really believe in it, Buck, that the more people you can get involved earlier and for longer, the better. Just having those additional perspectives and like check-ins and opinions along the way have have only made my work better. So, yeah, collaboration. 
what is the most important thing you've improved to make yourself a good creative director? It's writing. I think being able to like, not even necessarily write well or like, you know, write evocatively like a copywriter or a novelist, um, but just being able to like explain yourself well through a treatment or an email chain or even in Slack. Yep. Super important. What would you like to work on in the future? Part of the exciting thing of like us growing as a company, um, being a lot more people and and sort of dipping our toes into a lot more things is that that cross-contamination between departments and like projects happens a lot more and it's a lot more interesting. So I would love to start finding like what that sweet spot is between like narrative animation and like indie style games, for instance, or experiential events in VR or AR or something. So the more kind of like, the more we can mash together what we're already good at with new technologies and new platforms, um, I'm all in for that. If you were to go back and start your career again and give yourself some advice, what would it be? One, not dwell so much on mistakes or things you felt you did poorly. You learn more from mistakes than you do from successes. And then also to be to be more open, to like give stuff away. I think again, like I know myself as a young artist and I assume it's still the case today. I think a lot of people have this like protectionist mindset of like how they do this or the way they they draw things or this look that they developed. I kind of feel the opposite, just like show people how you did it, talk about it, and it'll probably be returned more in kind. Well, you're giving away something now, two hours of your time, uh, so, uh, and a lot of knowledge, so which is really great. So I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. Thanks very much for taking the time and sharing your knowledge with us. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. It was fun. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. And don't forget to become part of our jobs network if you're looking for a better job in Australia or New Zealand. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. This is emotion. Bye-bye.